0: and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander
1: people today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is
0: Australia? Please explain.
1: Life is changing in Australia. Because the pub is shut.
0: Sucked in, fellas. I actually find it gobsmacking. I will call it a personal nightmare. Tell the Prime Minister to go and get... It
1: is changing all around the world.
0: I accept your nomination.
1: The authority is total. And I rejected that approach. It's all about acknowledging how far we've come. We've all tip and no iceberg.
0: Like a really scary wooden puppet. He was drunk. But that's not true. Not now, not ever.
1: You're a classic space invader. A social climbing sycophant. You should be ashamed of yourselves. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. a of democracy, very good.
0: <laughs> Welcome to Democracy Sausage. I'm Virginia Marshall and I've temporarily taken over the tongs for Mark Kenny. So what do I do? Well, lately I've been researching a whole range of issues that deal with the rights of nature, continuing my work as the leading scholar on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander water rights and sea rights, and also really looking into an understanding for Researchers using Indigenous knowledge and the ethics around those issues. And I'm also the inaugural ANU Postdoctoral Indigenous Fellow at the School of Regulation and Global Governance and the Fenner School of Environment and Society at the ANU. I'm a Wiradjuri Nyemba woman from New South Wales and very keen to talk with uh, very interesting and amazing people in our community. There are many, and as we know, today's guest is going to be a very special conversation. Democracy Sausage is produced by the Crawford School of Public Policy and the Australian Studies Institute at the School of Politics and International Relations at the Australian National University. So today, we're going to have uh, an interesting guest on the podcast, and we're going to have a yarn with Peter Yu. And we'll be talking about a whole range of issues, uh, such as Peter's incredible advocacy over his life and his lifetime as a Yaru man, and what that means to him and and the meaning of country, and also exploring some of the issues that he's now tackling, which is uh, really leading a First Nations uh, body, a hub, which is really essential for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And we're going to find out why that is. And what is there yet to be done? Professor Peter Yu, A.M., is a Yaru man from Broome in the Kimberley region in northwest Australia. Peter has over 40 years of experience in indigenous development and advocacy in the Kimberley and at the state, national and international level. Peter is a key negotiator on behalf of the Yaru native title holders with the Western Australian state government over the 2010 Yaru Native Title Agreement. And also, Peter is the current and inaugural Vice President, First Nations, at the Australian National University. Now is a time to have a yarn with Peter, and let's get chatting. Hi, Peter. Welcome to Democracy Sausage.
1: Hi, Peter. Virginia, thanks for inviting me.
0: Oh, it's a pleasure. And and really, uh, it's also an honour because sitting with uh, such an amazing person that has had and fulfilled so many different roles over your lifetime, I guess what most people um, sitting here in their comfy chair today would like to know, what's the meaning of country mean to you? You know, your earliest memory of understanding yourself as a a Yaru person and the environment around you. When do you have that recollection?
1: Clearly, there's an inbuilt and inherent understanding where you're born on your country who you people are, what you do. But I think for a lot of us growing up in a close colonial environment, there's also a degree of confusion because of the particular legislative and regulatory kind of regime, racist regime, that governs you and your family's life. I mean, you know, where I come from, I'm from Broome, which is, um, you can tell by my, by my surname, my mother is Yaru, my father... You know, was a Chinese pearl diver coming to work and room like many Asian indentured labour before and after the Second World War. You, I grew up with my my grandfather and my Aboriginal family. You know, and we we are saltwater people. So basically, our entire lives were spent largely <coughs> fishing and and uh, sustaining ourselves through that way in the in the intertidal zone. So as saltwater people do, you you live off the ocean. You you fish, you hunt, you gather. That you share with your family. There was never, you never, never really any considered thought about uh, what it is you did because that was the way life was. That's what you learned from your, um, your grandparents, from your parents, from your, you know, all your extended families. It was not something you questioned. What, what you questioned was really what the nature of the overarching political and legislative regime that controlled your family. Lives Many people may not be familiar, but the 48 apartheid laws in South Africa, of course, came from Australia, you know, and that um, affected my family directly in terms of my mother coming, you know, on third-generation Catholic mission. My grandmother being a Stolen generation person, she's a Bunaba woman from Fitzroy Crossing, Have been brought to Beagle Bay Mission some, you know, 500 kilometres uh, to the, towards west, towards the coast. My mother, having been taken off her parents, and you know, and brought up in a dormitory situation on the Catholic mission, I think that we were caught the edge of my generation of being sent away to a mission school in Perth at a very young age, about, you know, 11 years old. Uh, at the same time, you know, things like my mother and father were not allowed to marry. It was against the law to cohabit with the native as it was in those days. With a penalty of, I think it's about, if I recall, about 30 pounds. You know, I remember my father mentioning a number of times he probably had to pay that under the table to the cops or somebody so that he didn't, you know, get arrested. As as would many other Asian people in relationship with with the uh, Yaru and other local cultural groups, of women. Broome is different because. They tried to turn a blind eye to the white Australia policy because they needed the Asian and indentured labour uh, there to be able to uh, harvest the, the pearl shell and the pearl to provide all of the kind of uh, you know the very hard labour work that needed to be done because the whiteful is uh, found it difficult to work in that in that environment. So uh, you know when you ask about what does country mean, country means you know your cultural connection to your family, to your people. We weren't allowed to speak our language. Uh, at school and generally uh, you know you had the, the dog ticket as the old people called it which was basically the only way that you could engage in a broader community was to apply to become a citizens uh, which basically meant you became an honorary white so you weren't allowed to mix with your family speak your language you know to receive those the of benefits but who knows the the country means that there is the Cultural and spiritual connection, but the country also means your lived experience at any particular time of any particular era that affects and influences the way you view the world and the way that you interact with that world and the way you view others. And so uh, I guess that's fairly long way of explaining it, but I think it's important to understand there are those effects and influences that, uh, that we've all had, you know, um, experiences in life and uh, it's important to understand you know how all of those components are made up.
0: And a lot of those difficult times as you mentioned and that's also shared by many Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people across this nation but also was there a time like um, many of us where you had that moment I guess other people might call it an epiphany but also when you were then In Perth, you're at a a Western um, structured school. When did the lights go on that Western education was very different than Aboriginal education?
1: Well, it's a strange uh, experience. Uh, I I don't know because um, you know I think we we, I was educated by the Catholics. You know, first of all, by the Catholic nuns, Saint John of God nuns, and then later on by the uh, Christian brothers, and in the middle of that, you had the German Catholic order of priests the, who, who ran the missions in the Kimberleys and, and in, in the south, the Palatine order. So it was uh, obviously a bit confusing, but um, <laughs> it was a hard thing to focus in on, on the value of education because growing up in, in my small community in Brougham, because you were so indoctrinated in the church, it, it so dominated your life Um uh, both not just when you're at school, but uh, also uh, in every aspect of it. Imagine being at a very young age, you know, racing each other to, to dress up in skirts to serve on the on the altar for mass and going to mass, you know, three times a day, you know, um, at times, it, it, it has a real impact and effect on you. The nuns, I think, provided us with a very good education base. I think going to Perth had its different... Dynamics and struggle because we were exposed. Growing up in in Broome, you kind of uh, protected it a bit because you live in your own environment, whatever the nature of the, the relationships then, which we were too young to fully appreciate or understand. But which you go to Perth, you're confronted fully with the racism that you have to deal with, uh, and particularly in the schoolyard and the classroom. And so you're, you spend your life growing through high school, defending yourself, being Fight, fighting off the intimidation from the teachers to other students uh, to people you interact with outside uh, in that because uh, you have a very closeted and very closed environment living on the mission um, where you're not allowed to mix socially outside. It was kind of like the uh, the bastion of the the kind of assimilationist structure that um, tried to tell you you know that we were somehow better than our own countrymen, and they tried to restrict our engagement with other Aboriginal people. Um, you know they tried to basically turn us into. We used to call it the school for super Niggers because there was special deportment classes, there was you know elocution lessons, there was ballroom dancing, there was all kinds of things trying to turn us into little whitefellas, and 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 of course it was a very strict and deliberate regime, there's no doubt about it. And that you can imagine for a young black kid coming from a small town in the bush, as it was then, extremely traumatising and challenging. So you didn't appreciate the value of education. Yet, you know, I, I can recall at Year 7 at primary school in, in Broome, the nuns teaching a Shakespeare, you know, we did virgin and Venice and had to present that as a school play to the, to the whole community. Room at the end of the year. But that's something I do remember quite vividly. We were actually learning things. We, we were um, that type of education that was provided to us by the uh, St John of God nuns had a real sense of purpose and value because we were comfortable in our community. We were living at home, going to school in the daytime. We could, you know, and after school you play with your mates and on the weekends you go fishing and hunting with your family. They were kind of natural things, but when you're taken out of that environment and you go to high school in Perth and you're in this, you know, base position dealing with uh, racism at every turn, you don't measure the value of education. So I didn't, you know, I would never really had a good education. I didn't even really finish year 12 in some ways. It's harder afterwards to learn to value it when you realise the limitations of not being able to do things you want to do uh, after you have a more wider life experience.
0: And do you think that that gave you the fire in your belly in your 20s and 30s that really made you the advocate that you are today?
1: I was really lucky because I did, I sort of did my apprenticeship at Bush with the senior people who, after I left high school, I came back home, but I went back to Perth, but, Then trying to find a job. And then that was another uh, disappointment where you couldn't get a job because you were black. There was a lot of jobs around. I suppose in some ways, the advantage of the the irony of it all is that you you don't get a job and you wait a long time to get one. And the people who give you that job are usually going to be more than not often than not probably decent and good people. So therefore, you're probably lucky not to get those other kinds of jobs where uh, you had to work in a very difficult Uh, Situation because you know Perth and Western Australia you know uh, was and to some extent is uh, you know a a, a racist place. Well, certainly the systems is, and I think there have been some advancement and people are more enlightened these days, particularly the younger generations. It took a very 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 long time, but going back to your question, I got a job working for the WA Museum um, recording Aboriginal sites. Actually, I didn't put in for the job; somebody else put in the job for me, and. uh, just got it and because I came from the Kimberleys. It was just after the 1972 Aboriginal Heritage Act came into play. I took the job. It was a training job. Was working with senior traditional owners at Bush, recording public sites, mainly up in the, along the Gibb River Road, um, all the Wanjana sites, rock art sites, the whole range under the instructions and directions of those senior traditional owners. So I spent a fair bit of time. Art Bush, walking out Bush with those senior people, in some ways, what I, what I call my apprenticeship. And I, I did go back to study for a while in Perth, but then I realised, because I was working in the museum, I got an entry into a bridging course that was then called uh, West Australian Institute of Technology, which is now Curtin University. And they let me, they credited me with some units and I was doing some anthropology there. And I, you know, lasted one semester and I, I said, this is absolutely crap. What am I doing sitting here listening to some white teaching me about my own culture? So I, I upped and left and I went home. I wanted to work back in my community.
0: So we are just going to take a break now and we will come back and continue this yarn in just a moment. Hey Dave. Yeah Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear, and t-shirts are super soft. or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back. I'm Virginia Marshall, and I'm still here with Peter Yu, having that great yarn. So, Peter, you've talked about travelling, you know, backwards and forwards from community, also looking at those early jobs that you you once did, and also your first real adult experience of a white education that wasn't... um, what you really thought it would be, but it brings you to the Australian National University in a, a very high-profile role, and with a First Nations hub, the first of its kind. What is going to be your purpose, and and why is First Nations education and networking, and especially your role, so important at this time?
1: Look, I as I was explaining before, I, I you know I didn't really. I had a pretty base education. I didn't have a. I wouldn't say I did I wouldn't say I had a great education. I think I probably learned a lot more from the old people I worked with at bush, who, who took me basically in their trust, and I was very fortunate in that regard, having spent most of my early career working in the bush, uh, in different positions, uh, and and being asked to uh, represent you know, various different levels at an administration level, but at a representative level as well. I think I was elected to the uh, National Aboriginal Conference in the early 80s. I think I was the youngest representative elected, but that was only because the community actually asked me to to do that. I didn't have a clue or know what the NAC was, quite frankly. Um, so that was my, another part of my education, understanding the kind of the politic of, of Aboriginal affairs as it was then and as it you know, has been throughout my career. You know, in most cases, I was kind of thrown into the deep end. It's very fortunate to have some, you know, very good mentors. Uh, but my um, understanding and learning has come from working with people, critically the, the senior cultural leaders and figures in the bush. I'm, I'm, you know, eternally kind of grateful for them taking me out of their wing and, and, and trusting me with that. And, and I guess part of my work is to repay that trust in in a way because it makes you angry, Virginia. You, you you would know equally when you're working in those environments. You know, and mine was in the post uh, pastoral award wages era in in the early '70s, and taking people back on country and being confronted physically with uh, obstruction from pastoralists and from miners, literally uh, in very threatening kind of situations, taking people back away from. Uh, the small towns, be it Fitzroy or Halls Creek or Derby or Broome or Conorara Windham, getting people back onto country in those early days. For a young person, you, you can't not understand from an education point of view how much you learn and how much you begin to understand the complete nuances of the public policy framework and in politic intentions of governments in trying to continue the subjugation and deny community the the equity and the rights deserved after such a long. Uh, a terrible history of marginalization and dispossession that we've suffered. So it it becomes ingrained in you. It makes you very angry. As a young person, you want to lash out. You want to be able to get very passionate and emotional about things. And I think age, you know, like everybody else, tempers that to the extent where you think more strategically about how you confront those issues. I was um, surprised, actually, coming to the ANU. I was uh, approached... See if I was interested in coming to the ANU and setting up the First Nations portfolio, given that I don't come from an academic background. And I always, you know, didn't have the educational levels as I thought you always have to have to, to get into university and stuff. And one of the things you reflect on is it would have been nice to have done, studied university and done something useful, but that didn't happen. But I think my life experience kind of has measured up to some degree to give me. Uh, a knowledge base and an experience base that is different from what you would normally expect in an academic environment. But I think it's uh can be very useful to come from a different perspective. And I think that's what I'm trying to do here at the university, at the ANU, is to look at uniquely the ANU as the national university and its inherent responsibilities uh, for First Nation communities' development and progress. So how How do you temper or target research that is meaningful and applicable towards um, advancing uh, the course and the position of First Nation communities as part of, you know, the two ends of the spectrum, I suppose. One is the national policy position, that deals with unresolved grievances and ongoing tensions between the nation state and us as the First Nation peoples of this country. And then again, how that—that that what's the nature of useful research contribution towards tangible and manifest outcomes that leverage um, in a more contemporary environment? How do we navigate into the local and regional economy so that ultimately, I think the the value of is understanding how do we own that risk ourselves and break the nexus of the codependency relationship in, in my view, what is an ongoing colonial one, turns the administration. Uh, in the federation of this country operates between the Commonwealth and the state jurisdictions and its impact on our, and our inability to develop a greater sense of social mobility and uh, our ability to, to navigate and negotiate our, our strength and our positions uh, into the economy. And I think that's particularly important now uh, in a post native title and land rights era where we have substantial assets, but we still, we still lack uh, the nature of our um, governance and management capability so there's a gap to be closed there which is building the competency and i think the university can be a critical factor and player in helping to build the knowledge base the capability and understanding environment and and factors that as to how we might allow our people to be able to provide the enabling not wait for any recognition or expectation but, but take take the opportunities and basically run with them.
0: Peter, you mentioned uh, about Indigenous research. So how important is that role in your work with the First Nations Hub uh, really profiling and also ensuring that Indigenous research is a valued component of what you're doing?
1: Uh, Yeah, it's, it's, its official title is the First Nations Portfolio. And uh, we have a development hub that sits under the, under, under the portfolio. It's, a, it's not an academic unit, and that's why I've tried to set it up differently as a business development hub. And there will be a learning and teaching hub that is towards uh, working towards embedding the uh, Aboriginal Studies curriculum and, and support for teaching of Aboriginal Studies um, it, across the campus at ANU. But research is critical. One of the reasons I uh, decided to come and work at the ANU is I'd heard this is fairly simplistic, I know, but uh, in the in the in the mid '80s, when um, Paul Keating and Bob Hawke introduced those fiscal reforms, taxation reforms, and, and floated the Australian dollar, that a lot of that work was done by the advice that came from senior economists in the ANU working and others. Would but I heard came from the ANU working with the uh, finance department and treasury uh, in terms of um, providing the analysis and the kind of um, uh, the, the, the substantive kind of reasoning and justifications. And, and, and obviously, they would have come from research and experience and knowledge of people in that space. But it provided government with the kind of reasoning and justification to make those important reforms. And I thought, well, if the ANU can do that, which altered the entire nature of the fiscal uh, regulatory kind of regime in finance uh, in Australia, surely the ANU can also do that for us as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, that we've got economists, there are lawyers, there are uh, social scientists. Uh, there are a whole range of subject matter experts in, across the university that do this research. And I thought, well, why couldn't they do that for us? Why couldn't they look at the question of compensation for Aboriginal people? Why couldn't they look at the question of agreement making? Why couldn't they look at the question of representation and mandate? Why couldn't they look at the question of Way that enhances the relationship, but is inherently around nation building uh, in the way that we manifestly deliver the kind of equity and the justice that's required in this country, that we continue to evade us, you know, because the bottom line position in the political relationship is always how do we deny or stop Aboriginal people from attaining you know, the equity and the justice so deserved. In answer to your question about research and its capacity to do things, that's not beyond us. Uh, and as a National University, in my own personal view, we have an inherent responsibility to promote uh, those kinds of issues. On the other hand, you know, you've got to navigate this question of academic freedom um, about the individual researchers' interests and academics' interests in terms of their particular discipline or their interests as to how they go about that. But I I think, to me, there's a sense of economic independence. There's the sense of duty of care. What are you doing research for? You know, you're doing research for your own benefit and growth and education and job prospects. That's all legitimate. There's nothing wrong with that. But I also think that uh, there is a a duty of care in respect to the – what are you giving back to the community? What are, what are you, how is this enhancing the nature of how we uh, as a society can better ourselves, improve our circumstances, learn to understand our own experiences and, and to be able to, you know, generate a, a greater return for that investment? See, Because in the ANU, you know, in, in 19, 1946 when it was established, Everybody does. it was established as part of the post-war reconstruction uh, endeavour by the government and by people like Nugget Coombs and others. It was looking at uh, industry, you know, manufacturing, looking at uh, science and technology. But now, 75 years later, in, a, in the year of our 75th anniversary in the ANU, uh, we've achieved a lot in that direction. Uh, the ANU is the, the number one research institution in the country. But we've, we if you were to look at this from a kind of post or emerging COVID uh, environment, a lot has moved away from those industry-based and manufacturing-based type of stuff. I mean, that's still important; engineering is still important, but obviously it's much more high-tech these days. But people are looking more at health and well-being. People are looking about societal transformative issues. And I think that this is where the you know the, the, the era is to make some leaps and bounds in research that gives us a better definition of where we sit within this because, you know, we're all challenged by climate change. We all are trying to understand what our position is here, but we, and, and there's a, a huge debate going on of racism, you know, Black Lives Matter internally in Australia, the whole, you know, why is it left to the sporting codes? to raise and promote the issue of racism and try and deal with that? Why isn't that a government responsibility, you know? And so I think we've now moved into a, an era where research is is critically more important now for us. And I think uh, what we haven't really done is understand the nature of the importance of data in research uh, and how that uh, can deliver real reform and change.
0: And that's a brilliant way to ask the last question in our yarn, Peter, and drawing on the strengths as you have through your whole life uh, of community, of cultural bosses providing that strength and understanding, what do you see is the most important thing for an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander person considering going to Uh, further education such as university?
1: Well, I know, well, this is a generalisation, but I I think I know most of our young fellows coming through would say they want to, you know, have a successful career, But, but I think primarily what they would be saying is I want to give back and help my people. It's a way because I, I, you know being black in this country, you can't help but think and do that. That's just a you can't help but be political because that's that's just the makeup of our our history and our experience in colonisation. We know we want to do that, but there are so many different facets of and, and areas in which that can be applied. But I and and it's important for people to achieve you know from an individual basis to attain a level of qualification and. and uh, reputation, and it's important for people to get good jobs, uh, for them to enjoy good income, and then for them to have stable um, family lives so that, you know, that's the basis of um, the rebirth of our society. But in that is the strength of the truth of our connection to country, our connection to our own people, our connection to the kind of understanding the real value sets, moving away from the rhetorical bubble but understanding its true application of benefit uh, to our community and to analyse that, to think about that in a politic way. I, I don't mean be political. Uh, what I mean by think about it in a po- politic way is that like Einstein said, you know, where there's a, there's, 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 there's an action, there's a reaction. It's about being more smart and clever about understanding about the nuanced position of what you say, what you do. How does that measure up, really? You know, these days, social media, people say whatever they want to do, there's no accountability. What is the depth of that knowledge? What is the depth of that comprehension? What is the depth of that experience uh, can sustain your argument that can clearly distinguish you from others? who might rely on social media. You know, it's not about us. It's not about us as individuals. It's about those of our community who are struggling through no fault of their own. It's it's about those of us who have sacrificed things before us to allow us to do what we're doing now. It's about paying our dues, you know, to the community. And certainly in my view anyway, I think that's has to be a major reason about why you want to achieve for yourself which is all well and good, and you're entitled to. It's not inconsistent with giving back, and, but it's, it's understanding how you can give back and what the value of your research is uh, to that contribution.
0: Thank you, Peter, and thank you for sharing today. It's been really wonderful to have that yarn. And now, listeners, thanks so much for tuning in. We'd love to hear your thoughts and you can reach us on Twitter at A-P-P-S Policy Forum or join our Policy Forum Pod Facebook group. We're looking forward to you joining the conversation. Mark will be back next week with another episode of Democracy Sausage. Stay safe, jira jira, and we'll see you then. Yinyamara.